This is session four. We come to another main section. We've looked at section one, a section that we um, asked an overarching question concerning, is the world lost? The answer is yes, it is guilty before God. And we saw from chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3, how God, acting as the supreme judge of the world, allowed the different groups of people in the world to present their case before him, to plead their case. But in each instance, the pagans, the, um, those under law, those not under law, um, those who had the oracles of God, the favorite of God, as it were, they all appeared before God, but they were all still found to be guilty in the sight of God. Now we come to the second major uh, section of the book that I have called Salvation, the wonder of God revealed, in salvation specifically. And that goes from verse 21 of chapter 3 to verse 39 of chapter 8. This is probably one, of course, all of the chapters are important and vital. You know, it's hard to say, but this is a very meaningful section because it focuses on the grace of God, focuses on salvation through faith. It talks about faith and what it is and so on. So this is a very, very uh, thrilling, actually, uh, section. The question here is how does God save sinners? The answer he saves them in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And uh, we're going to see how this whole section ends up in chapter 8, one of the most outstanding chapters in the Bible. Barnhouse. He was an outstanding Bible teacher in my heyday in the 60s and so on. Donald Gray Barnhouse. He did a series of lectures at the Presbyterian Church in, where is it? I think it's either Pennsylvania or New York, on the book of Romans, and it took five years to go through it, the book of Romans. His book is supposed to be one of the most outstanding in that area. But he asked uh, a question of a lot of the pastors who attended his lectures. He says, if you were stranded on uh, an island and you could only have one chapter of the book of the Bible, what would it be? He says the majority of them answered Romans chapter 8. I think when we get to that chapter, you're going to see why. It's one of the most amazing chapters in, in the Bible, I believe. All right. First section we're looking at, and you have your notes there. Uh, justification. And you see, I have in brackets, declared righteous in Christ. That's an, a summary, a concise definition of justification, to be declared righteous in Christ. Emphasize the word declared, because this is in contrast to the Roman Catholic's position on justification. As you know, um, this is one of the major dividing points between Protestants 
and Roman Catholic. In fact, many would say this is the cause for the division. They would define justification as made righteous in Christ. Whereas we who are supposed to be Protestants will say we only declared to be righteous. It's an official or judicial declaration by God. It isn't that we are righteous, but we legally declared righteous. Um, you'll see more of this as we go along. All right, in verses 21 through 31, and I hope you open your Bibles. I'm not able to put all the scriptures on the screen, but I encourage you to open your Bibles because you know maybe you'd like to make notes as you go along as well. And I would want you to read some of the passages as we go through, as we make reference to the verses. So please turn in your Bibles now to chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. We're looking at that chapter. God's plan of salvation revealed. And I put here, it is entirely biblical. What I'm, why I put it that way is because Paul is going to draw upon the Old Testament to substantiate what he's saying. And showing that, hey, it's taught in the Bible, it's taught in the Old Testament. First of all, righteousness is provided to Jesus Christ. Would somebody just read verses 21 and 22 for me, please? Well, not for me, read it for the class. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all, and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. But is important there. Because he's contrasting now uh, what he has said before. And this is a strong contrast. In other words, it's the very opposite of what he's saying here. It's a strong contrast to the divine verdict that the world stands condemned and lost before God and completely helpless to save himself itself. That what it took three Paul took three chapters to explain that. To validate that, to substantiate the fact that the world is lost, condemned before God. Now he starts a new section. But, if you want to do a really fascinating study of the word, study all the buts. That's butina, not butt. Alright, study all the buts in scripture. Alright? Uh, it's, it's an amazing study. And remember that this preposition uh, shows a contrast. So just the opposite of what comes before. It's a, it's a wonderful study. And that's what's happening here. But God has a plan to save mankind. Although man is completely lost, helpless, condemned before him, man, God has a plan to save mankind. And the first thing made clear is that salvation is all of God. That's why we're going to go slowly through this section because this is a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? A clear presentation of the gospel from here to chapter 8. It's all of God. It is absolutely and totally free. And it is completely in keeping with his revealed will and God, uh, will and word. These are the three points that are made that are going to be explained and expanded upon in the rest of the chapter. Salvation, all of God. 
absolutely free and in keeping with the will of God. Tremendous, tremendous um, revelation here. First of all, he says, it is apart from the law. In other words, when we say apart from the law, you cannot be saved by the law. The salvation he's talking about is not in any way related to the law. It is apart from the law, but it is not contrary to the law. It's apart from the law, but it is not contrary to the law. Paul is going to talk about uh, in, in other books where the law is good and holy and profitable and all of that. But when it comes to salvation, it has nothing to do with it. It conforms to, that is, God's salvation conforms to the standards of the law, but the law was not given as a means of obtaining salvation. In the gospel, works do not result in salvation. They result from salvation. All right? That's another important truth concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is attested to by the law and prophets. If you read verses 20, those verses, you'll see that. It's attested to. In other words, it is validated by, confirmed by, substantiated by the law and the prophets. It's not something that is absolutely new, although the new elements being revealed, but is demonstrated by the law and the prophets. Now, the law here does not mean the, the Ten Commandments only. It has to do with the Torah, the five books of Moses, if you want. All right? Five books of Moses of what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and... Right? No? What are the five books of the law? Thank you. See, you're all sleeping, man. You're all sleeping. It's attested to by the law and prophets. Thirdly, it is uniquely appropriated or received. Uniquely. Up to this point, the Jews especially were taught if you want any favor with God, you had to obey the commandments. But now, when it comes to this salvation that Paul is talking about, that's apprehended, laid a hold of by faith, not works, by faith. This is a unique message, by faith. Fourthly, it is universally available, available to all, Jew and Gentile, those with the law, those without the law. Smart people, not so smart people. It has no, any, no kind of bias at all towards anyone, no prejudice. It's open to all, universally free. Now, of course, from a theological point of view, we get all kind of fights about that, but that's how most of you all understand it, right? Universally available. One of the great truths that are brought out in First Corinthians one thirty that is it is spelled out in First Corinthians one thirty, but it is explained in this cha- in these chapters is that Christ Himself is our righteousness. Christ is made unto us righteousness. He Himself is our righteousness. You see, it's not the righteous things that we do. Christ Himself is our righteousness, and that's another tremendous truth. As you go through here. You're going to hear a lot of things that you knew before, but I hope you see it in a new way to cause you to really become thankful uh, and even worshipful tonight for the salvation we have in Christ. All right. 
He then goes on, quote verse 23 for me please, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is just another way of saying that righteousness is needed by everyone, universally needed, because all have fallen short of the mark of God's glory. That simply means we've all failed to please God. All right? We've all failed to please God. Uh, Righteousness is universally needed. It's needed by all men without distinction, as I said. It means all continually fall short of God's standards. Whether pagan, moralist, or religionist. Remember those are the three categories we looked under, we looked at in the first three chapters. They all made their case before God, and God says, you all condemned. You lost. You had an opportunity, you had the light, you rejected it, and so on. One may appear to be closer by human standards, but all fall short of divine standards. But God's gracious salvation uniquely fits all mankind. Some people like to uh, illustrate the idea of falling short. People who say, well, you know, I do good works, and so on. Well, the idea, some people like to say, if, uh, if you want to uh, cross uh, from this side of the uh, harbor to the next side, all right, uh, and you swim as fast as you can, and you could swim fast. But if you tie out and drop before you reach, even if you got a little guy who can't swim at all in paddling, you know better than he, right? Because although you swim fast, you can't swim all, enough to get all the way. Or somebody says, if, if you suppose to throw a stone to the other side, and you throw it right up to one inch before it reaches the other side, you still haven't reached it. You still fall short. No matter what we do, we fall short. Our good works cannot cross the bridge as it were. All right. Verse 24. Somebody please read that chapter, that verse for me. Being justified what? by his grace. So the point we're making, righteousness is graciously bestowed. Remember now, if it's grace, it's then what? It's apart from works. Right? You don't buy it, you don't purchase it, you don't earn it. It's totally free. Absolutely free. It's a gracious gift. Because God knows that man cannot save himself, he cannot earn it, he cannot devise it, God makes it possible for all men to receive it if they desire. All men are alike, they cannot achieve it. All men are put in the same position, they can, if they just would receive it. They cannot earn it, I should say. But God gives them the same opportunity to receive it. All right? It's given freely by the grace of God. It's a gift. It's a gift. If you work for it, if you try to earn it, it's no longer a gift. Justification is the legal and formal or official pronouncement of acquittal from guilt by God as judge, and that the believing sinner stands righteous or without cause for condemnation before him. And he gets to Roman 8, he's really going to play that. He says, who is it that... What? 
condemns. It is God who justifies. The idea is, is it who can condemn successfully the person that God justifies? It's a rhetorical question. No one. Because he, the judge himself, is the one who justifies. That's what it's saying here. Once God declares us right, righteous before him, we are completely, absolutely, and forever secure. That's the trust. All right? Now, there's a great difference between forgiveness and justification. All right, we're talking about justification. So I want to make this clear. Forgiveness cancel a debt owed. The person who is owed the money when forgiveness is done pays the debt himself. Justification, I'm sorry, forgiveness cancel a debt owed. One is no longer liable for the debt. Justification is the official pronouncement or declaration that it can never more be demanded from the one who is forgiven. Alright, you see the difference? Once forgiven, justification allows the one forgiven to be able to say, not guilty, if the charge is ever brought up again for any reason. That's where Romans 8 comes in. You're going to see that later. You see, the forgiveness is the basis, although different now, is the basis for God declaring that the person is completely righteous before him, stands without blame, without sin. Paul is emphasizing justification in Romans, not forgiveness, although both are involved in salvation. Two, not only free is sacrificially, it comes through redemption in Christ Jesus. Redemption here means not only to be purchased out of the slave market of sin, because that's where the term comes from, but also to be set free by the purchaser. You see, normally when you, and this is a, this has to do with discipleship and sanctification, all that. Normally when you buy a slave, back then, what do you do with that slave? You own him, you keep him. You don't buy him and let him go so he could choose anything else. But with the Christian is different. At least that's what some think. When we are redeemed, when we are set free from our sin, Christ says, okay, you're free, but you could still choose who you're going to serve. Now some use the illustration that if the sinner says, I want to uh, stay with the one who bought me, this means Christ now, then he becomes a bond slave. That means, remember in the Old Testament, when a slave is released uh, the, during the Jubilee year or whatever, and he didn't want to leave his master, he chose to stay with his master, he becomes a bond slave. He would go to the doorpost of the home, the master would draw a hole in his ear, identifying him as a slave who decided to stay with his master rather than to be set free. Some see that as a Christian who decides to choose to follow Christ in true discipleship. They go to the doorpost, as it were, and have the Holy Spirit 
put a hole in his ear, that's full commitment. That's just, you know, that's how they, they put it. That's redemption. And they say others, no, others would serve the devil, the old master. This is where the big struggle, and we'll talk about it in Romans 6, 7 and 8, about the old nature and the new nature. Another big problem. All right? But here, the idea of redemption is you've been purchased and set free. You have a choice now. And by the way, the Calvinists would say, this is only true of believers at this point. The believer is the only one who has a choice, a real free choice. A sinner does not have a free choice. They are bound by sin to choose only that which is evil. But a sinner who has been redeemed is in a position after redemption either to choose to serve Christ or the devil. They say, some say, that's the only real free will at that point. All right? All right, let's move on. In verses 25 and 26, righteousness declared and demonstrated. Somebody please read those verses. Whom God displayed publicly and officiating his blessed faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness in the present time, so that he would be dust and the justifier of the one who has faith. Notice, this demonstration, this declaration is done in order to demonstrate the righteousness of God, the character of God. In these two verses, then, we have righteousness declared and demonstrated. First, it's, it's demonstrated in passing over sins before the cross. The word propitiation in the verse means to expiate by sacrifice. It doesn't mean to appease. It means to expiate by sacrifice. Really, it means to satisfy. But not to appease. It's a difference. All right? I'll show you as we go along. Christ's sacrifice on the cross fully satisfied God's righteous and holy demands so that he can now look favorably and graciously upon man. I like the phrase, it put man in a savable position. Alright? Now, this is just looking at it in a practical way. It put man in a savable position. God can now act with him in a righteous way. That was not true before the cross. God did not overlook sin then, but simply put it in a place where he could deal with it in a just but gracious manner. It's like putting it on hold. Some like to use the idea of a credit card. Sacrifices in the Old Testament was a credit card. The bill wasn't paid, but you could profit from it. When Jesus died, he paid the bill. The cross was that, that place. It met all his righteous demands. That was the point of propitiation, place of satisfaction. That's when the credit card 
the funds were given for the, that was expended by the credit card, as it were. Christ paid the bill. Right? That's what propitiation is. God's demand for righteousness is satisfied and justice on the cross by Jesus Christ. In justifying sinners who believe after the cross, verse 26. Please read that verse, verse 26. For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And the justifier, okay. Two Old Testament sacrifices illustrate what this verse is saying, but being the just and the justifier and all those. Two verses talking about how God deals with sin. One was a sin offering. The worshiper or the the Jewish person would place hands upon this offering, signifying the sin of the sinner being transformed to the, not transformed, transferred to the sacrifice as a sinner's substitute. In other words, they would put their hand on the animal, symbolizing that their sin is being transferred to this, to this animal. All right? Now, they had what they call also the scapegoat. Um, this animal upon whom the sins were transferred would then be released into the wilderness. And that's where the sin would be seen as forgiven. You know we have the song, gone, 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 yes my sins are gone. That's the idea. God says, I will remember your sins no more. Right? As far as the east is from the west and all that. That's the idea. It's the scapegoat. Jesus is seen as our scapegoat. Our sin is transferred to him. You see? Then there's the burnt offering. Again, placing hands on this offering signify that the virtue of the sacrifice was transferred to the sinner. Because you see, the burnt offering, the animal was killed in place of the sinner. You see? So the life of that animal was killed symbolically becomes the life of the sinner. Jesus is the burnt offering. You see? He dies for us, but we live in him, is the idea. And that's the way that God could justify us and deal with our sin. You see? It's a beautiful picture here of the whole idea of sacrifice and why it was necessary. And Jesus was, but God was teaching us and teaching the people of Israel about the work of Jesus Christ through these sacrifices. You see? This is why I look at the cross as what I call um, I call justification in reverse. In justification, as we said, our um, our sin is put upon Christ, right? 
on the cross, God looks at Christ and sees us there. Right? And he, when he punishes Christ, he's not punishing Christ. He's punishing us. Not re, I call it not reverse justification, I'm sorry, reverse imputation. Reverse in, imputation. Imputation is when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We are sinners, but his righteousness is imputed to us. Christ is sinless, but our sin is what? Imputed to him on the cross. That's how he suffers. This is what we're talking about here. Beautiful picture of imputation and justification. All right? Now, the other verses, verses 27 through 31, it says righteousness is based, salvation is rational. I should have a little dash there. Righteousness based salvation is rational. In other words, it's something that it, it makes sense. It can, you can explain it. Read verses 27 through 31, please. It is excluded by what law of work? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not only of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. Okay. Paul is simply saying that what God did in giving his righteousness the way he did, if you look at it, is really rational. Think it through. It makes sense. First, it excludes all boasting and eliminates all human pride. Why? Because it is based upon the principle of faith, not on works. You can only boast or have any sense of pride if you do something. That's why, you know, I hear a lot of people say, I'm proud to be a Bahamian. You don't have nothing to do, well, unless you was American and come, you know, and don't want to be. But if you were born here, you don't have nothing to do with choosing to be Bahamian. So you can be proud of, you can be thankful for it, but not proud of it. Same way with people, and I, I always thought of this because it came when I saw some young people and they're happy and everything, that blazing across the t-shirt, I'm proud to be a Christian. That's really a bad statement. Because you're implying that you had something to do with becoming a Christian. You see? You could be thankful you're a Christian, but you can be proud because of, you can be proud because of this very reason here. Salvation is by faith, not anything you do. You see? It's not by works. You can't boast in it. Secondly, it is consistent with the fact that God is God of all. It eliminates human prejudice. God justifies everyone on the same basis in the same way. No matter who you may be. Jew, Gentile, with the law, under the law, rich or poor, whatever it is. He justifies all on the same basis. Thirdly, 
it validates or establishes the law. The true purpose of the law is upheld by the principle or law of justification by faith. Now, we can explain that more when we get to chapter 4 and 5. The true purpose of the law is upheld by the principle or the law. Now, let me say law. I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments here. You're talking about the principles or a maximum or whatever you think of justification by faith. It eliminates human presumption. In other words, um, what God does here in declaring man righteous on the basis of faith is completely of God, all of God. We have nothing to boast of, nothing to glory in, nothing at all. We have nothing to do with, earn, nothing with doing, with earning it at all. It's all of God from beginning to end. All right? Now, again, when theology comes in, not all theologians believe that. They don't believe that salvation is all of God from beginning to end. They believe that man started it. Why? Because God looked ahead and saw who would accept him. So God's original choice of man was not based on what he did, but what on man will do. You see what I'm saying? Whereas the other one said, no, 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 start right from God. Everything, all the way, has to do with God. And when we come to chapter 7, 6, 7 especially, uh, we're going to deal more with that idea. Go to chapter 4 now. This, now, this is a tremendous chapter on faith. Um, and again, we want, we're going to go slow through this as well, because I know you're going to be asking more of these tantalizing questions. He is now going to illustrate uh, God's means of salvation, faith, specifically. Paul expands on the concept of salvation by faith without works and gives two illustrations from the Old Testament to show that this concept, the concept of salvation by faith, has always been in keeping with the will and word of God. This isn't, although it seems to be so new, it is something that he has dealt with in principle all along. The first illustration he uses is Abraham. He's the father of Israel, the father of national Israel. Abraham received his righteousness by faith, not works. And Paul then goes into the life of Abraham and to explain his experience. Could somebody just read verses 1, 2, and 3 for me, please? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found... <laughs> For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Tremendous passage. Notice he says, if Abraham was saved by works, he had something to boast of, but what? Not before God. Where could he boast it? He could boast before man, but not before God. And that's what he's going to be demonstrating here. Now remember this, as far as the Jews were concerned, there was no greater saint than Abraham. He was not saved, Paul is saying here, by works of the law. So now try to understand with 
Paul is saying. Here's Abraham, the man that you revere most than any other person. You look up to him as the father of the nation. But let me tell you something. He was not saved by works. He was not saved by the law. Now you would think the father of the nation, if anybody was saved by the law, it would be Abraham. But Paul says that's not true. He was saved through faith in the promise of God, the word of God. Paul's point is that if Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, could not be saved through works, then surely no one else can. And that's why he went right to the apex, right to the top, to Abraham. Abraham could not be saved by law, could not be saved by works. What makes, think, what makes you think you can? That's the point he's trying to make. It's a powerful point. And to do this, you really got to understand how much esteem and love that, that, that the Jews have for Abraham. There's just no one greater. You see? No one. Paul expands. It is important to see that even in Abraham's case, in the final analysis, his faith was in Christ. Now, this is where Paul starts to reveal things that they did not know. Abraham's faith was actually in Christ. Although historically, he was placing it in God. Read this verse in Galatians 3.16, please, on the screen. The promise was in you see what he's saying here? And this is, a, by the way, is a tremendous verse to show the inspiration of Scripture. All right? And, and how important it is to understand uh, here. Paul is making the distinction between a singular and a plural word. Seed, not seeds. You see? Show the inspiration of Scripture. But he's trying to show here, and he can say later on, but Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. He's trying to say, when he talked about seed, he's actually talking about Jesus Christ. All right? We, as believers in Christ, are the children or seed of Abraham. Why? Not because we're Jews, because we're not. But rather, because we are saved by faith in Christ, the same way Abraham was saved by faith in the word that spoke about the seed who is Christ. And so salvation in both the Old and New Testament is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to say. Paul is trying to say that salvation, even the Old Testament, was based on the person and work of Christ. It was shown in pictures and symbols, but nonetheless, it was true. Jesus was the substance of all of those things in the Old Testament. All right? Now he applies that truth uh, in verses 4 and 5. Somebody read those verses for me, please. Now to him that worketh, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of death, death. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. 
Okay, so what he's saying is, now, see, I've told you about Abraham. Here's what Abraham did and everything else. Now, here's what it means to you. God's principle for receiving righteousness in faith, I mean, is faith in him, not human works. That's exactly what Abraham experienced. That's what he did. It wasn't his works that saved him. It was his faith in the word of God. All right? The principle is the same. People are saved by faith. Faith in God, who he is, what he has said. That principle is true of Abraham, the father of the nation. It is true of the nation as well. It is true of us. That's the first illustration he used. Abraham, father of the nation, the greatest saint of all, as far as they were concerned. Now he goes to use another illustration, and that's David. Who is David? David was the founder of the royal line of Israel. Verses 6 and 8 tells us that. He was the line of the kings. He was the, he, he, he was the, he, he was the, uh, uh, the, if you want, the, the, the grandfather of the land, uh, of the line of Jesus Christ. Alright? All of the royal line came through him. David also received his righteousness by faith, not works. And even as Abraham is an illustration of the greatness of, the greatest of saints, so is David an illustration of the greatest of sinners the greatest of sinners. But yet he too was saved by faith, not works. And he wrote about it in the psalm, especially Psalm 32. If you read that, that's a tremendous psalm that David talks about how uh, God graciously reached out to him after his sin and so on. So see what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, here is this fellow that you revere so much. You see him as a what we call a saint. Good man, a just man. Abraham. He was saved by faith. But now look at David. He's sort of the opposite of Abraham. He's a sinner. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was all of that. How was he saved? He was also saved, not by works, but through faith. You see? David illustrates the truth that God freely bestows righteousness and graciously cleanses the sin of anyone who believes in him apart from any kinds of work whatsoever. Paul's point is this. If God does it for such a sinner as David, surely he could and will do it for anyone who will place their faith in him. So these are, these are tremendous illustrations that Paul is using uh, to demonstrate the truth of what he is saying, that salvation comes by faith apart from works. Abraham was saved by faith. and He was supposed to be a good man. Here is David who is a sinner. How is he saved? He was saved by faith as well. Everyone is saved on the basis of faith. This is an important passage because Paul is talking about salvation and he wants to make it clear that it's all a free, free gift from God. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. cannot buy it. It all comes by faith in Christ. Abraham's faith is what we call faith in the God of resurrection. Because you know he was about to kill his son. But he was doing with the assurance that God would raise him from the dead. That's Hebrews 11. You see? He believed in the God who would raise from the dead. That's salvation faith. God would raise Christ from the dead, 
he could raise us from spiritual death as well. This is a very important part, though, here about faith. So let's just finish up a little bit more. Abraham received his righteousness prior to the rite of circumcision. This is what he talks about in 9.12. See, because some of the Jews were saying that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. Paul is now going to show Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. Abraham received his righteousness prior to the rite of circumcision. Therefore, his salvation could not have been based on observance of circumcision. That's his point. And then he proves it. When circumcision was given, Abraham was still uncircumcised. And so righteousness is not based on observing religious rites. We can apply that today. Through all the sacraments the Roman Catholic talk about, baptism today, joining a church, all those, whatever you want. We're not saved by anything we can do at all. That's what Paul is making here. Secondly, Paul is now going to tell why circumcision was given, why the rite of circumcision was given. It was given as a sign of righteousness already received, not as a basis for it. And also, it was seen as a seal of the fact that he, as Abraham, uh, represented all others who would be saved on the same basis as he. Faith only, apart from any works or rites whatsoever. Abraham is a model of that. Abraham is a man who models, who illustrates, who symbolizes the truth that we are saved by faith and not works. All right? And every aspect of his life can show that. Circumcision didn't do it. Nothing at all was a part of his salvation. It was only faith alone. Now, the word alone, or only in, in Latin, is solo. That's why Martin Luther wrote in the Bible, the just shall live by faith solo. And this is what we call the great dividing line between Roman Catholicism and evangelical Protestants, right here. The word alone makes the difference. For instance, Roman Catholics believe in the efficacy, in other words, the effectiveness of the blood of Christ for salvation, but not the blood of Christ solo, only, or alone. They add the sacraments. They believe that Jesus is mediated between God and man, but not that he is mediator solo, only, or alone. They add the saints, the Pope, the priests, and the Virgin Mary. They acknowledge the authority of the scriptures, but not their authority solo, only, or alone. They also are the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. You see the point? So it's this concept of alone, solo, only, that makes a difference. The Roman Catholics will tell you, yes, we believe in the efficacy of the blood of Christ. Yes, we believe that Jesus is the mediator. Yes, we believe that the scriptures is authority. But they don't believe that it's only and alone, though. They add something else to it. So it's the alone, it's the solo that makes the difference. You understand? That's very important for you here in understanding Roman Catholicism. All right. Paul teaches a solo doctrine when it comes to these issues. And in particular in Romans 4, he teaches that the righteousness which is required for salvation is received by faith only, solo, alone, nothing else. It is all of and from God. Man can do nothing to achieve it. Nothing, 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 nothing. 
You understand what that means? Nothing. You feel good. <laughs> Abraham also received his inheritance by faith. Verses 13 through 16. Faith brings us both into the favor and into the family of God. Faith brings us into the favor and family of God. In verses 13 through 16, Paul um, contrasts the promise of the Lord with the precepts of the law. In other words, he tries now to show the difference between promise and law. The promise, this is the promise that he gave to Abraham. The promise, well actually not only Abraham, he also in Genesis 3, he promised the Messiah. The promise was never contingent or dependent upon the law. How could, how could it be when the law was not given until 400 years after the death of Abraham? And, of, and also, if it were dependent on the law, the promise would have failed because the law failed. Failed to bring salvation. The promise was made on the principle or law of faith so that it might be sure to all who believe. Now, when we say law here, we're not talking about the Old Testament, we're not talking about the commandments, we're talking about a principle. All right? A principle. It was made on the principle of faith, so that it might be sure to all who believe. No works in, at all. It's very important. The law had nothing to do with the promises. Two separate, we call them dispensations now. All right? But fifth, Abraham received his posterity and righteousness through faith. This is the latter part, verses 17 through 25. His faith was based on knowledge of the person of God. Read verses 17 through 20, please. Verses 17 through 20 of chapter 4. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he pleased, even God, to give life to the dead and fall into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the dead was a sad one. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God has promised, he was able also to perform. All right, what, Paul is doing a lot of things here, but basically he's trying to show that Abram's faith was based on the knowledge of the person of God. Now I want to underline, knowledge of the person of God is always the basis of faith. You would not believe in uh, trust in the Word of God unless you believe that God was a faithful God. Right? Faith is based on a knowledge of God. The more we know of God, the more faith we're going to have. The less we know of God, the less faith we're going to have. And that's all. It was an intelligent faith. It was based on knowledge. Knowledge. For instance, when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans. God said to him what? Huh? Right, he says, get out and I'll show you the land. And the Bible says he left. Some people say that was blind faith. 
But if you read Acts chapter 7, where who was killed? Stephen. Where Stephen was martyred, stoned, remember? He told the story of, a, of, of uh, Israel beginning with the call of Abraham. And you know what he said? The God of glory appeared to Abraham. And when you read that in the context and you get all of the, the meanings of the, the tenses and not, you get the idea that God revealed his glory to Abraham. In other words, he revealed his person to Abraham. And so when Abraham heard God say, go out, he didn't go on only blind faith. He went out on the basis of the God who revealed his glory to him. You see? So his faith was in God. His faith was not in his faith. His faith was in God, not in his faith. And so that's why there's no such thing as blind faith. Blind faith is exactly that. It's blind. Intelligent faith sees what is not there yet, but he sees it nonetheless. It was an unnatural faith. That's when he talks about, um, he looked at his wife. You know, God said, I can give you an heir. He looked at Sarai. Man, she too old to cut the mustard. You know, he looked at himself and says, Body that's dead. Can't produce any children, you know. But yet he believed that God could produce life out of those dead bodies. He weighed the human impossibility of his becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God breaking his word. And concluded that if God was indeed God, anything he says he can do, he can do. Anything is possible. But his faith was based on the faithfulness and power of God. And that's what faith is, basing our, our belief on who God is and what he can do. His faith is rewarded by God with righteousness. It says his faith was counted, was accredited to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith, God says that's righteousness. You see? And that's what he needed to stand before God uh, as one who is acceptable of him. Then he goes on to show that his faith is a model for believers today. Um, we must follow his pattern, we must follow his process, and we are saved in the same principle. In John 8 it says, Our father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. This is Jesus speaking. He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw the day of Jesus. Now in context, you're going to talk about um, the gospel was preached to Abraham as well. You see? Um, Abraham was saved the same way we are. He looked forward by faith to the finished work of Christ. We look back by faith to his finished work. But we enjoy the same salvation on the same basis as Abraham did. And so Paul uses the illustration of Abraham and David to show what it means to be saved by faith and the fact that it applies to everyone. No matter how great a sinner we are, no matter how good we think we may be, it's all based on faith. And when we place faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Can't earn it, can't work for it, no, it's all through faith. 
faith alone, in Christ alone. It's all, by, it's all on grace alone as well and for the glory of God alone. Well, let me just, this is, this is what I was trying to say here. So Paul has contrasted salvation by works with salvation by faith. He's contrasted salvation by trying with salvation by trusting. He has shown that, as illustrated by the greatest saint of all times, Abraham, the father of national Israel, and the greatest sinner of all times, David, the founder of the royal line, salvation and the receiving of God's righteousness come only by faith and trust in the person and work of Christ. Salvation is by faith solo, only, and alone. Selah.